Good evening, I'm Roger Grimsby. Here now the news. Harlem Sydenham Hospital is still occupied tonight by demonstrators. Neighbors who marched on the hospital nearly 24 hours ago to keep the city from shutting Sydenham down. It was 1980, a warm September evening in Harlem. Hundreds of protesters surrounded Sydenham Hospital, chanting and singing. We have a good hospital here, Sydenham Hospital, to give the care. So I want to say to you that we're going to be here all night, we're going to be here all day. This hospital belongs to the community, it does not belong to Mayor Koch, not Governor Kerry. It was a standoff. Mayor Koch versus Harlem. The mayor wanted to close Sydenham, and Harlem was fighting back. We're holding this hospital. We're going to continue to hold it. And we denounce the actions of the mayor, the unresponsiveness of the mayor, and the bad faith of the Health and Hospitals Corporation. At one point, dozens of demonstrators actually made their way in the front door. To save the hospital, they would take it over. This moment had been building for the better part of a decade. This was a final act of desperation, and it came as a surprise, even to some organizers involved in the movement. I had no idea that they were going to take over the hospital. I walked into the hospital and saw them there, and I was like, what is going on? A Boone at Alona grew up in Harlem. She'd been fighting to save the hospital for over a year. I was stunned. I was like, you took over the hospital? You really took over the hospital? And believe that. <laughs> Still, she supported the takeover because she knew what Sydenham meant to Harlem. So when we say we took over the hospital, I know it sounds like, well, did you take over the ER and you took over the, you know, <laughs> what did you take over? To take over the hospital didn't mean interfering with doctors and nurses. Protesters occupied the administrator's office, the guy who was in charge of Sydenham and who answered to Mayor Koch. Everything continued to function without the administrator. They would stay for 11 days. Friends brought them food. They hung their laundry out the window. And while the demonstration inside was peaceful, outside, things got violent. Judy Wessler was a public health activist at the time. She remembers one confrontation with the police. They came out swinging. And, you know, I'm white, so so they didn't try to touch me. But there was... uh, Two cops beating up on a guy with their sticks on the ground. You know, I wasn't thinking. I went over there and I said, stop hitting him or something like that. And one of the guys sort of spun me around and said, maybe get out of here before we start on you, you know, or something to that effect. The violence of it uh, really stuck in my mind. A few weeks later, the city closed Sydenham for good. We wanted to understand, what did Sydenham mean to Harlem that made this community fight so hard to save it? And despite all that, why did the city shut it down? I'm Dan Latou. And I'm Grace Benninghoff. This is Shoe Leather, an investigative podcast that digs up stories from New York City's past to find out how yesterday's news affects us today. This season, we're focusing on the 1970s. We'll look beyond the bell-bottoms and disco to explore what made this decade notorious in New York's history. A decade in which the Big Apple went by a far more sinister nickname, 
Unionized employees of New York City who face dismissal have put out a booklet describing Fun City as Fear City. In this episode, we're examining power, who had it and who didn't. Because when New York City faced a budget crisis, someone had to pay. Judy Wessler doesn't throw anything away. At least, that's what she told us. And judging by her contribution to Columbia's Health Sciences Library, it seems true. Judy's a public health activist who's worked in New York City for decades. She donated dozens of boxes of notes, records, flyers, relics from throughout her career. Some of them date back to the 70s, when the fight for Sydenham first started. So Dan and I headed to Columbia's medical campus to see what we could dig up. Okay, so we are here at the archives, we think. Yes. Do we need to swipe this at all? Oh, yeah. I mean, no one stopped me, so we're good. <laughs> this place looks cool. Like, it's it's like all these other places. Oh, my God, this door is so creepy. <laughs> all these other places we've walked in have been, like, kind of more, like, hip, like, new-looking places. Yeah. And this definitely looks a little older, like, more real books. Like, in a collection of, like, dictionaries. Yeah. We wondered what these records from the 70s might be able to tell us about the impact the budget crisis had on the healthcare system. I am so excited, though. We've just opened the first box. Yeah, and already just the, the titles look so... Even just the titles look so... Uh, Harlem Hospital Crisis Folder. Sign him. Often. Wow, we're going to need to come back here like four times. No, we're going to be here forever. Yeah. And after a few hours, we started to get an answer. Whoa, whoa, this is a cool map. Check this out. What? Hospital closings and low-income communities. Um, What? We found a map of New York City. It doesn't have much detail, no street names or landmarks, but it's big enough to pinpoint specific neighborhoods. There are about 15 dots on the map. Each one represents a hospital that closed in the late 70s. Someone's also taken a highlighter to it. There's a key explaining that the highlighted areas are designated as low-income and medically underserved. All but three of the closed hospital dots are covered in highlighter. We were shocked. We knew the city struggled financially in the 70s, but we didn't realize how many hospitals were closed and in which communities. The map showed whole swaths of the city had lost access to health services, most of them low-income neighborhoods. One of those dots on the map was Sydenham Hospital. Sydenham Hospital opened in 1892 out of a Harlem brownstone. At the time, it was a private hospital. But after some financial troubles, the city took it over, and the hospital moved to a 200-bed facility on 124th and St. Nicholas in the heart of Harlem. Sydenham served predominantly the Black community of Harlem from the beginning. And in the 1940s, it took an even bigger step in serving that community. It became the first hospital in New York City to hire Black doctors and administrators. It was also the first hospital in the nation to give Black doctors admitting privileges. Admitting privileges are really important in Sydenham's history. So that's when a doctor can get you into a hospital faster? Yes, but there's more to it. It also means that the same doctor you see regularly is in charge of your care at the hospital. So before Sydenham, Black patients who suffered from cancer or who underwent surgery, those with chronic health issues that routinely landed them in the hospital, they couldn't count on having a doctor who looked like them overseeing their care. 
Eventually, this policy became citywide. But for Harlem, Sydenham being the first hospital to do this created a real sense of pride. Sydenham also had a reputation for hiring and promoting people of color. In 1971, Florence Gaynor became executive director, the first black woman to head a major hospital in America. By the mid-70s, Sydenham was a trusted local hospital where people in the neighborhood went when they needed health care. People like Eboon Adelona. This was an excellent hospital. And it was a small hospital, so it was, it was very personal. And the care was personal. She says that having Black health care providers gave her a greater level of trust in the care she was getting. I could trust my provider to do the best for me. And if you have any understanding and awareness of the history of, of health care in relation to people of color, to be able to say, this is a hospital that I trust. I trust the providers in this hospital. I mean, that was the beauty of, of Sydenham. Here's what you need to understand. There's a long and fraught history in the United States between Black communities and the healthcare system. If you know the history of African-American people in relation to medical institutions, we have not had good experience in those institutions. One, we're looked upon as not feeling pain, so we're under-medicated for pain. The way you're treated, all of those things made us and make us reluctant to go into Eurocentric facilities. Nearly 21 years ago, a study out of Emory University found that Black Americans are systematically undertreated for pain compared to white Americans. Then, in 2016, a study by the National Academy of Science found that more than half of medical students and residents hold false beliefs around biological differences between Black and white patients. In 2005, the National Academy of Medicine also reported that doctors are less likely to deliver effective treatment to people of color even after controlling for things like class and underlying conditions. One study showed that Black patients with heart disease received older and cheaper treatments than white patients. For Eboon, after Sydenham closed, she didn't feel she had many options left. Her experience isn't uncommon. I sat down with Heather Butts, a public health professor at Columbia specializing in race, to chat more about this. You know, the relationship that African Americans have had with the United States has been um, challenging at best torturous at worst, one can have a very meaningful relationship with someone who might have shared experiences, may look like you, and may be able to relate to you culturally and ethnically and racially in a way that somebody else might not. Um, And that's a win, and that's positive. And that's what African-American healthcare workers can do for African-American patients. She and I talked about what it meant for a Black community like Harlem to lose a hospital. When you remove a hospital system and people who have come to rely on it and had their children there and their grandchildren were born there and their great-grandchildren were born there, that is removed from a neighborhood. So I, I think any neighborhood, I don't think African-Americans have like the, the lines here of, oh, we're devastated when a hospital system is removed. But I would say that if you come from a culture and a racial group where it has been difficult to create those kind of bonds because of racism and prejudice and just getting access to quality care, 
uh, is challenging and difficult. When you find that and it's gone, it becomes exquisitely difficult to find it somewhere else. Losing Sydenham would have left some Harlem residents with nowhere else to go. Not necessarily because they couldn't get to another hospital, but because they might not have felt safe getting care somewhere else. If you're African-American, where do you go after that in the 1970s and 1960s? And the answer is unclear. You kind of take your chances. I think if you're white, there's a little bit less concern in terms of what reception will I get at NYU or Roosevelt, St. Luke's. If I go there, you might have other concerns like physically getting there, the travel, um, what happens in an emergency. But uh, what you probably won't be concerned about is, will I actually be seen? Will I get care? Will I will I survive? And as an African-American, you would have that concern. There was another hospital, though, just a mile away from Sydenham, Harlem Hospital. People often pointed to it as a reason to close Sydenham. It was larger, had more modern facilities, and also staffed a number of Black doctors and surgeons. A lot of people in Harlem already went to Harlem Hospital. Sydenham had 200 beds, while Harlem had 272. According to the 1975 Community Health Survey, Harlem Hospital had nearly five times more visits per year than Sydenham. But Heather says taking all those patients from Sydenham would be a huge increase for Harlem Hospital, a lot to absorb. Where do you go? You know, it's Harlem Hospital, right? But um, can everybody go there? <laughs> Does everybody go there? Uh, that's a tall order. You know, how many how many people can one hospital necessarily absorb from another one is another question. From the dozens of people we spoke to, we got this sense that it was about more than just the number of hospital beds. Sydenham occupied a special place in Harlem. Its specific history and legacy was important. But the city was soon thrown into chaos, and Sydenham would be collateral. New York City is right on the edge of financial disaster this morning. Governor Hugh Carey of New York told Congress today that default by New York City would be an economic Pearl Harbor for the rest of the nation. West German Chancellor Schmidt came here and said the collapse of the world's financial capital could push the whole world back into recession. In 1975, New York City was suddenly bankrupt. It's hard to pin down any one cause for the crisis. Experts say it may have been some combination of a global recession, outdated tax policies, and middle-class New Yorkers leaving the city for the suburbs. Either way, there was a $600 million gap in the budget. The bank stopped lending to New York, and Mayor Abraham Beam made drastic emergency cuts. Bridges were suspended in air when operators were fired. Policemen were let go. Firemen were laid off. Even those with the job weren't sure they'd get paid. Here's a sanitation worker talking to BBC journalist Peter Taylor. How has the financial crisis affected your work? My work? I lost all faith in the job. How can you work, you know, and you don't know whether you're going to get paid on Friday? Two weeks ago, they stopped the checks. They wouldn't pay some of the men. But it still wasn't enough. So New York looked to the federal government for help. Mayor Beam went to Washington. He brought allies, mayors from other cities, to plead with Congress. The state has done all it can. The city has done and is committed to do in the months ahead more of what we've done. And if the federal government does not help us, I think it will find the problem afterwards much more serious. Here's the mayor of New Orleans. New York is not here as a supplicant. 
It is not here for a handout. It's not asking for anything that we haven't done repeatedly for private enterprise or asking the federal government to do that which it hasn't done indeed for itself. The problem was the federal government didn't trust New York to manage its own money. The city had gotten itself into this mess, so it would have to fight its way out. Months of panic ensued. Would New York default on its debt? Who would save the city? Speculation grew over whether President Gerald Ford would approve a bailout for New York. On October 29, 1975, he made a speech at the National Press Club. If we go on spending more than we have, providing more benefits and more services than we can pay for, then a day of reckoning will come to Washington and the whole country, just as it has to New York City. He was clear. If a bailout passed, he would veto. It would be too risky for the entire country to take on New York's debt. When that day of reckoning comes, who will bail out the United States of America? Thank you very much. For the city, it was a terrifying realization. In their moment of need, there might not be anyone to save them. Alistair Cook, a reporter for BBC in New York, read the papers the day after Ford's speech. Five words that blackened half the front page. It said, Ford, let city go broke. <laughs> the New York Daily News was even better next morning. Ford tells city... Drop dead. That last headline is so infamous that it actually inspired the title of this podcast. But neither of those sentiments were quite correct. Despite the headlines, the president never said drop dead. But that was the feeling in the city. What was most important for New York is what happened next. First, Ford and Congress eventually did bail out the city. I have decided to ask the Congress when it returns from recess for authority to provide a temporary line of credit. For $2 billion in aid, the city would have to keep a tight budget under the watchful eye of the state and federal governments. Under the deal, the city had to cut over $200 million from its budget for the next three years. This was Mayor Beam's reaction. The coming months and years will mean new sacrifices for all New Yorkers. Second came Ed Koch. He ran for mayor in 1977 the first mayoral election since the financial crisis. Bringing people together isn't a matter of telling them what they want to hear. You can do it by telling them what they need to know. Koch positioned himself as iron-fisted, ready to make the tough decisions. Board of Education wastes millions of dollars. The next mayor of New York must get control of the money spent in our school system. And he must set higher standards for our students and teachers. And it turned out to be a winning message. He was elected mayor with 50% of the vote. From day one, Koch put his agenda into action. He built a platform on saving New York from itself. One of the places Koch looked to save money was education. In 1979, he proposed massive cuts to the Board of Education, around $84 million. 60% of the total budget cuts New York City made that year. But it was Harlem schools that would take some of the hardest hits. 
Harlem lost more schools than any other neighborhood in Manhattan due to the financial crisis. Between 1974 and 1983, eight schools closed down in Harlem. In comparison, only one school on the Upper West Side closed during the same time. After schools, the city set its sights on hospitals. The city had been trying to close municipal hospitals for a long time. The system had become incredibly expensive. I spoke with Dr. Merlin Chaokwanyan, a historian at Columbia School of Public Health, about this. So this was always kind of a conversation in the 60s and 70s, but you can see why it would accelerate at a time when the city's finances are under strain. Like now people are going, okay, look, <laughs> you know, we kicked the can down the road, but we've really got to address this question of whether or not all of these hospitals necessarily need to exist in their current form. A lot of municipal hospitals were saved by affiliating with a private hospital or an academic medical center that could take on their costs. But Sidenham remained unaffiliated. Hospitals that didn't affiliate usually had something in common. An intense neighborhood localism that was suspicious of a big outsider coming in to, to swallow a neighborhood institution. Sidenham unaffiliated only had the resources laid out for them in the city budget. According to the mayor and his associates, Sydenham was outdated and underutilized compared to the nearby Harlem Hospital. He and other people in the Department of Hospitals had long seen it as this thing that, you know, was there, but perhaps didn't need to be there from a kind of cold, rational utilization and cost perspective. They said it was costing the city $9 million. And since there were bigger hospitals in the neighborhood, patients could find care elsewhere. Dr. Chakwanyan is clear about the expenses Sidenham was racking up. However, he adds numbers don't always account for everything. Sometimes the quantitative metrics don't tell the whole story. So let's say Sidenham, you know, only did have a utilization rate that was under norms that would classify it as an underused hospital and one that, you know, wasn't quite cost effective. But, you know, is that really the right metric? Uh, the mistake people make is is getting into binary thinking. You know, you either have to run the hospital the way it always has been run or you have to shut it down completely. So I do think um, the the proper thing to do, not just in this Sydenham case, but any case, is to kind of constantly rethink the form of healthcare delivery and see if you can preserve um, some of these culturally important features. These are the things the city was considering when they made the decision to close Sydenham. This is Haskell Ward. He was deputy mayor for Ed Koch and the highest ranking black official in City Hall. He remembers the beginning of the administration. Ken had the attitude that he was going to show his bravado. He was going to show that he would tackle very difficult issues. New York had been considered over the years difficult to govern, and that he was going to be a one who came in with the strength to make some very difficult changes. Haskell remembers one day, thousands of protesters marched across Brooklyn Bridge to City Hall. They were rallying against police brutality under Koch. We put police on horseback completely around City Hall. And in the midst of all of that, I'm sitting there, Ed and I are sitting there, and Ed decides that he wants to go and have lunch across the street and walk through those protesters uh, and show that, you know, they weren't going to stop him from doing what he wanted to do. And I said, Ed, you're nuts. You're completely nuts. Why would you provoke that kind of thing? 
that he was given to that kind of, a, of, of attitude. One target of the mayor's focus was hospitals. The mayor's position was that New York could not continue taking losses from the public hospital system. The city estimated it was losing $55 million. Other mayors had been afraid to touch hospitals because it was too controversial. That's not how Koch handled things. When it came to the hospitals, I think that Ed had a a position largely framed on highly charged political instincts on his part that he had to show some kind of decisive action. On June 11th, 1979, it was announced that the city would be closing four municipal hospitals. All four were in minority communities, two in Brooklyn, two in Harlem. Haskell Ward was the one who went out and publicly talked about the mayor's plan. He had to tell the community why they were shutting down Sydenham. He says he didn't always agree with the mayor. The reality was that we're closing a facility and the optics of closing a facility in such a healthcare-deprived area didn't make sense politically or health-wise. But it was his job. I would not, as a public official, be out disagreeing with stated policy. Haskell was concerned about the mayor's decision. There were already plans to replace the hospitals slated to close in Brooklyn. But for the hospitals in Harlem, there were no such plans. When Sydenham closed, no new hospital would be built in its place. But if you close it and then there's no replacement, that is the issue. That is what bothered me about the whole idea. And the fact that they were both facilities in black and brown neighborhoods was something that I, I, I couldn't countenance. He says he brought this up to the mayor, but Koch wouldn't listen. He really was unresponsive to the notion that changing them would have a disparate impact on black and brown communities. I think he had a very strong political sense that there were things that you could do to show people that you were a decisive leader. If it impacted blacks, then so be it. And and I think that was where he was tone deaf. Municipal hospitals also had a reputation for taking all patients, even those who couldn't pay. There are people who need, in emergency circumstances, they can't afford anything. Sydenham policy was to take everybody who had a need for care. Haskell says he tried to offer alternatives. One idea was a more effective system for collecting patient fees. My position in terms of the fiscal aspect was we need to devise a way in which we can collect monies due to the city and spend more time creating a more effective collection system. But he says the timeline of this plan was too slow for the mayor. Koch felt the gap in the budget needed to be fixed immediately. According to Haskell, there was another proposal to save the hospital, potentially with help from the state and federal governments. But the state-saving New York did not sit right with Koch. It was like any mayor of New York. They didn't want the governor running the city. For Koch and his advisors, Haskell was standing in the way of the city's financial success. For those who opposed the closure, he wasn't pushing Koch hard enough. He was a stand-in for the mayor at public meetings, and as a result, faced backlash from the community. Protesters wrote songs about him. The New York Amsterdam News covered a meeting where he was booed and heckled by activists. Community leaders were openly critical of him. It didn't bother me. I, you know, that's what you get when you're in public life in a city like New York. In fact, the strength of the backlash made him feel more resolved that closing Sydenham would be the wrong call. 
I had to listen to what people said. In fact, some of my views were influenced by the strength of some of the opposition that people had. Ultimately, Haskell made a decision. If the mayor was going to move forward with the closures, he would resign from his post. That's what I said to the mayor. There isn't any way for us to reconcile this. You were elected and I wasn't. By the time the city officially announced Seidenham's closure in June of 1979, activists in Harlem had jumped into action. They didn't have a roadmap for how to stop a hospital closure, so they tried pretty much everything. Carol Donahai was a social worker at nearby Harlem Hospital and active in organizing to save Seidenham. She led walks around Seidenham every night to protest the closure. Every Monday through Friday, we would demonstrate. And that was at, during, during the dinner hour. So one season, one fall season, it was on cold time. We were out there and other people would drop in and give maybe an hour to walk around and demonstrate and keeping the issue alive. She says these demonstrations weren't about being the biggest or loudest. It was about consistency. They were letting Koch know that they weren't going anywhere. And did you feel like, it was, were, there, were there moments where you felt like you really were going to prevent the hospital from closing? Yeah. A Boone handled policy. She conducted meticulous research and drafted proposals to keep the hospital open. At the time of the occupation, she and other organizers had formed a corporation. She was proposing that Sydenham continue to operate privately under the Sydenham Hospital Corporation, with funding from the federal government, taking the financial burden off the city. She went to the state with the proposal, and when it was rejected there, she took a train down to Washington. She brought a plea directly to then-President Carter's administration requesting federal funding for Sydenham. She says she was feeling hopeful. Yeah, I did feel that our proposal was going to get accepted. We really, we really felt that way. But then what happened was the HHS came up with a, a concept, the hospital serving uh, the community of addicts. The Carter administration said they would fund a drug and alcohol clinic to replace the hospital. But the community immediately rejected that idea. The, the responses that people gave was, they just think we're addicts. We want a hospital, and they're offering us a hospital for addicts. So they think that that's what we are. And no, we're not going to accept that. Judy Wessler used her experience as a public health advocate to pressure City Hall and the hospital board. She organized opposition and rallied groups for public meetings, trying to convince the city to keep Sydenham open. What, what were your interactions like with the administration? Mainly yelling at each other that <laughs> I remember. You know, we tried to sell the idea of getting additional funds, getting federal funding, and they weren't interested. Judy had fought for other hospitals before, but she says there was something different about this fight. It was a, a broad community fight, and there was an attachment to Sydenham that maybe wasn't present in others of the hospitals. It was a very strong, very, you know, spirited fight. So that brings us back to that September evening, the occupation. 
all options were exhausted and the official closing date of October 1st was getting closer. Leaders of the movement had a plan. Koch's administrator at the hospital was ordered to begin shutting down services. If they could stop him, they could buy more time to find a solution, something to keep the hospital open long-term. Eboon wasn't actually camped out inside. She was working on that policy proposal we mentioned earlier. Part of the reason for the occupation was to give her more time to push the proposal forward and hopefully keep Sidenham open without the city's funding. The only thing we were stopping was the administrator from carrying out the various procedures that one has to carry out in order to close the hospital. And that gave us then time to deal with the proposal, negotiate, et cetera. So this was a move to buy a little bit of time. Yes. As the occupation went on, things grew more and more tense between demonstrators and police who had set up a perimeter around the hospital. When Koch made his announcement that he had to send in the police, that gave the police permission to riot. Now, I used to go there at night and just snoop around and listen to them talking, the police. And what they would talk about is who they were going to get when they got a chance. On a Saturday, about halfway through the occupation, things got violent. Judy Wessler doesn't remember exactly how it started, but the aggression from police sticks in her mind. The police department had set up a very strong, you know, outer rim. It depends on who you talk to as to whether it was the community that started to breach the police line or was the police that jumped over their, you know, Johnny bars or whatever they called them. Eboon rushed to her congressman's local office to see if he might be able to do something to stop the chaos. I went to Charlie Rangel's office and I said to him, the police are rioting and they are chasing people across 125th Street. Would you please call the police commissioner and tell him to call off his police? Eventually, things calmed down. Protesters dispersed, and so did the police. Demonstrators remained inside Sydenham for a few more days. Eboon continued work on her proposal. Operations at the hospital continued. The last few nights, Carol went to rallies outside the hospital. Occupiers would come and speak from the steps. She remembers the atmosphere in the crowd. More hopeful, but resigned. I mean, they really wanted the hospital to open. And they were there believing it could and should be open but recognizing that they were not powerful people, nor were they decision-makers to these kinds of things, and that their only strength was in their numbers and the support of the community. After 11 days, the occupation of Sydenham ended. Police carried demonstrators out of the building. Over the next few weeks, patients were discharged or transferred to other hospitals, and Sydenham closed its doors for good on November 21st, 1980. If you really understand a system, then you're not surprised, but you still attempt to make changes and to use 
the the uh, the the knowledge, the ability, the skills, the power that you have to lighten the load and to bring about a change. After Sydenham closed, Eboon stopped going to hospitals altogether. She had loved the care she got at Sydenham and didn't feel safe going to other hospitals in the city. Did you feel afraid that you might not be able to get the kind of care that you needed at other hospitals? For me? Yeah. I knew that I couldn't get any health care in any other hospital. And so what I did was begin to deal with holistic health. I said to myself, you're going to have to take care of yourself, baby. <laughs> because um, <laughs> there aren't any hospitals that you want to go to. You're going to have to learn how to take care of your child and make sure that she grows up healthy. After its official closure, activists fought for another year to reopen the hospital. But they never could. Even so, Eboon feels confident they accomplished something important in the years they spent fighting. I'm proud of how we came together as a community and supported one thing. And then when we lost that hospital, turned around and elected the first Black mayor in, in New York City. In 1989, David Dinkins would defeat Ed Koch in the Democratic primary and go on to be elected the first Black mayor of New York. One of his key aides, Bill Lynch, was part of the group who occupied Sydenham. Years later, Ed Koch reflected back on his decision to close Sydenham. Here he is in a 2013 interview with Piers Morgan. What would be when you're honest about everything? And the, the documentary is yeah. very brutally honest yes. in parts. What has been your biggest failure? Do you think? I'll tell you, um, the biggest fault, if you will, um, is when we closed Sydenham, which was a uh, hospital run by black doctors. Mm -hmm. And so I said, I'll close it because that's what the experts tell me to do. Um, but what I didn't realize was the psychological pain and attachment that the black community had, understandably, because uh, it was the first hospital that admitted black doctors when other hospitals would not. Now, uh, I didn't appreciate uh, that. I wanted to do it on the merits. Koch goes on to say that Governor Andrew Cuomo, during his first administration, considered closing some state hospitals. At an event with top advisors to the governor, Sydenham came up. They asked me if I had a question. I was in the audience. Uh, and I said, I, uh, my question was, do you think I did the right thing in closing Sydenham? Of course you did. <laughs> and I'm saying to myself, jerks, don't you ever learn? Today, New York City finds itself in another economic crisis. After the fallout of COVID-19, the city faces a potential $4 billion shortfall in its budget for next year. Once again, leaders will have to decide who will pay the price to dig the city out. Shoe Leather is a production of the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. This episode was reported, written, and produced by me, Dan Latou. And me, Grace Benninghoff. Joanne Farian is our executive producer and professor. Rachel Quester and Peter Leonard are our co-professors. 
Special thanks to Columbia Journalism Librarian, Christina Williams, Columbia Digital Librarian, Michelle Wilson, Michael Barbaro from The Daily, civil rights attorney Ron Kuby, Madeline Barron and Samara Freemark from In the Dark, Emily Martinez and David Bloom from Audible, Susan White from Garage Media, Professor Dale Maharaj, Fevin Mered, Elise Manukian, Rachel Pilgrim, and Josh Lash. Additional sound mixing by Peter Leonard. Shoe Leather's theme music, Squeegees, is by Ben Lewis, Doran Zuni, and Camille Miller. Remixed by Peter Leonard. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions. To learn more about Shoe Leather and this episode, go to our website, shoeleather.org. To stay up to date on the latest shoe leather happenings, follow us on social media. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash shoeleathercast and on Instagram and Twitter at shoeleathercast.